said, I'll be speaking about gratitude. And uh, it, it, it kind of is, right? It's the topic of, of the day, of the season, gratitude and worship. And yet I find that gratitude is sometimes difficult to get into. And someone looked across and said, what's everyone grateful for? And then there were crickets. And everyone sits there, and then somebody says, well, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for this, and, some, and I'm grateful for this. And then gratitude begins to build, and it builds, and it builds, and it builds as each person shares what they're grateful for. My hope is that this morning is a little bit like that, that as we as a church come together, we've already started declaring the stuff that we're grateful for, that we worship and to thank God. And my hope is that through this message, God would continue to draw out things in our hearts. I was gonna title the sermon, they asked me for a title, and I thought about it, and then I decided not to give it a title, because I'm pretty sure uh, whatever I titled it in the future, we will either all refer to this as the first time or the last time that they ever let me speak on a Sunday morning. <laughs> so we'll have a much better indication of which way it's gonna go, but we're in this together. So with that, let's go ahead and jump in. I'm gonna be preaching out of Psalms 136. We'll have that on screens if you want to turn Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever and killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage, to, a heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever, gives thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. There are some passages of scripture that require a great amount of skill and practice, even training, to be able to exegete and understand what it's about. This is not one of those passages. 
If you were paying attention at all, you should be able to sort of stick a dart on the board and go, I think the psalmist is actually calling us to give thanks to God because his steadfast love endures forever. 26 times in the passage, that same phrase, his steadfast love endures forever is repeated. Have you ever had the experience where you are trying to convey an idea and you just can't find the right words? Yes, yeah. And in fact, there are words that uh, are better communicated in other languages than they are in English, right? So if I'm trying to explain the feeling as though uh, something just happened before and it's happening again, that's really difficult to do in English. So we borrow a word from the French and we say déjà vu, right? I think of a word in Portuguese. There's a word in Portuguese called saudades. And saudades is this word that's, it's this um, intense grief, longing, melancholy nostalgia for someone when you aren't with them. And it just means saying, I'm hurts when you're apart. We don't really have a word for that in English. And in the same way, the word that we keep repeating, his steadfast love, that's a rough approximation. We're trying to get our finger on an idea that's communicated so much better. In Hebrew, the chesed, you gotta do the thing, right? And our own understanding of loving, of kindness, right? So over the history of translations, translations have translated as mercy, as loving kindness, as steadfast love, as grace, as goodness. And everyone's trying to nail down this idea. That, but hesed is this type of love that indicative in it is that it's following through on that love. It's a committed love. It's a generous love. It's a love that doesn't follow through out of obligation, but follows through out of delight and affection. And it just, it hits a little bit harder than steadfast love. But it's 26 times throughout this passage. And in fact, even that repetition is pointing back to Exodus, Exodus 34, when God meets with Moses and he tucks Moses into the cleft of character to Moses. And one of the things that he says, God says that he is overflowing in steadfast love. He is overflowing in abundant kindness. It's difficult to try and nail down this word and understand what do we mean when it says steadfast love. And as I've thought about it, actually in scripture, in fact, the majority of the time that it's used, it's used about God, which makes it even more difficult. But as I've tried to think through what does this love look like, the thing that has come to mind over the week is my uncle. It's a beautiful love. Uh, my aunt about a year ago was diagnosed with cancer. And my uncle has rearranged his life in order to love her, in order to care for her. He is following through on his commitment till death do us part and better or in worse in sickness and in health. There's action to this love. He spends his days cooking meals for her and caring for her and reading to her. This is a beautiful love. It's a beautiful love. This is the type of love that God has for his people. This is the chesed love that God has. It's not a trivial love. It's not a, a, uh, just a sense of affection. It is a deep abiding love that cares for, that has action to that love. This is the chesed of God. 
And so the first reason that the psalmist gives us why we should thank God is because he is unmatched in his goodness. There's nobody else who loves like this God. Even humans, when we can sort of attempt to model this love like my uncle, there are days where we fall short. There are moments where we snap. There's moments where we then act out of character and are no longer acting through this love. God is not like that. It says that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. It never ends. There will never be a moment where God acts out of character and where he does not act in accordance to this steadfast, enduring love. Man, that's a reason to worship God this morning. That's a reason to be thankful. Yeah, it is good. And what makes it even better is that paired with his unmatched goodness, he is unparalleled in his power. The psalmist goes through and he spells out all the things that God has done, that he is the God of gods, that he is the Lord of lords, that he is the one who calls the sun to rise in the morning and the moon and the stars to take their place in the night. The psalm sees the very act of creation as evidence of God's goodness and his power. This week, as I've thought about that, I've just thought about the idea that God didn't need to create a sun and a moon. They're not necessary for his life. They're necessary for ours. And so God has ordered creation. He's used his limitless and endless power to order a creation in a way that sustains life, in a way that brings about a place where we can have relationship with him. Thank you, Lord is right. Come on, somebody. The other piece that I think this centers on is he calls out that God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. The scripture is clear that God is not the only thing out there that would like to declare itself as God and Lord over the universe and your life. Yes, he is uncontested. Yes, he is unparalleled. Yes, the victory is assured and it is his, but there are other powers, both human and spiritual, that are constantly trying to proclaim themselves as Lord and King. And Spurgeon, as he reflects on this idea, he has this statement. He says, imagine a supreme Godhead without everlasting mercy. It would have been as fruitful a source of terror as it is now a fountain of thanksgiving. This year, I think that we've all seen people, the last year and a half, who have, we've watched as they've been led off by other gods, other kings, other lords. Maybe it's a political party, maybe it's a set of ideologies. I had a professor in college who, when talking about lower G gods, he talked about how the lower G gods of the ancient world and of the East have become the ideologies of the West. And we may not spend our days bowing at the shrine of Durga or other gods, but we spend our days bowing at the gods of consumerism, the gods of political ideologies, Anything that seeks to define your reality or command your allegiance is attempting to usurp God's rightful place as God and Lord in your life. And if I can just appeal to you for a second, those gods and those lords are... There is one God and there is one Lord. It's part of what... You're done. You're canceled. There's no forgiveness. There's no route back. There's no redemption. That's it. God is not like those gods. Praise the Lord. 
He is good and he is forgiving. He loves to forgive. Yeah, thank you, God. Along with the fact that God is unmatched in his goodness and unparalleled in his power is the truth that God, God is faithful. The psalmist takes a whole section of the psalm and he reverses again and what God has done to the people of Israel. That God led them, he redeemed them, that he declared the sea on the Egyptians, and that after that he, he led them through the desert. He led them into the promised land. He defeated the other kings and he gave them inheritance. And along with the repetition 26 times, steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, the psalmist rehearses what that looks like in his own history and his own life. Why does he do this? He does this because we forget. The people of Israel, time and time, remember what God has done. But are we so different from Israel? God has done great things in this church, in this region, in our lives, and we forget, I forget. Our hearts are bent towards complacency. Uh, this week, it's funny how when you start thinking about gratitude, God starts pointing out all the things. This week, I was even thinking about my wife and I are incredibly grateful. About three months ago, we moved into a home, which is just an ex extreme blessing. We are so thankful. And yet I find that there are moments where that thing that at once was this fuel for gratitude has now become stale and even can be a source of complaining where I get up and I go, oh, I didn't have to mow the lawn when we rented. Right? It's, it's funny, but our hearts are bent towards complacency. There's always something better. There's always to remind ourselves of what God does and that he's faithful and that he's been good to us because those things grow old. I was thinking about that Christmas morning moment with children, right? On Christmas morning, they run down, they open this present, it's that thing that they wanted and what happens? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh my gosh, thank you. I love you so much, mom and dad. I love you. Thank you so much. I love you. And gratitude like that. But you give it about a week. Joel's smiling. He's looking at me. He already knows what's coming. You look at, you give it about a week, and then what happens? That toy is now the thing that when they're upset, they're hurling across the room, right? And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. So how do we combat, combat this ingratitude? Well, I think there's a couple ways. I love the, the hymn, Come Thou Fount, where it says, Come Thou Fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing your praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for psalms of loudest praise. There's a reality that by default, our hearts go out of tune and we are required to tune them to gratitude, to tune them to sing the praises of God. And that is an active uh, action. That's not passive. You don't get to just pick up an instrument and it's in tune, right? There's a tuning to be able. Part of the reason that we spend 20 minutes at the start of every service week after week after week is because corporately as we sing, we are tuning our hearts to remember what God has done, that he has done great things, that it's his breath in our lungs. Then that's why we sing of what has rehearsed that and let's allow that to lead us into worship. That's what God has done. 
And along with that, God has not just given us a, a mind or a heart, God has given us a body as well. And I'd, I'd like to speak for a minute as one of your worship leaders. I think that often when we wish to engage, the modern understanding of the human person is that we are either a mind that inhabits a body or we're a set of feelings and desires that inhabit our body, but we typically have a very low value uh, for our bodies. Scripture teaches that actually you are mind, body, and as much as our mind, what matters what you do with your body. And in that, we're all aware that there are moments in life where we to be able to lead emotions and our heart and our desires in obedience. In a similar way, God has given you your body to lead you into worship. If you are feeling uh, like you aren't feeling it, maybe you aren't walking in and weeping over the steadfast love of God, maybe you feel a little bit more discontented, your body is actually a gift to usher you into worship. God has given you in it to move you towards him. And so when you enter into worship, if you aren't feeling it and you raise your hands, that's not disingenuous. That's your body aligning with the truth of who he is and ushering your emotions into worship. Can we be a people that even when we aren't feeling it, can we be a people that engages? Can we get off of our seats? Can we get off of the bench? Can we step into the game? Because this is what the Holy Spirit meets me and he begins to speak to me. Maybe he's convicting me of sin or pointing out an area of my life where I haven't given him full allegiance. And I stand there and I wrestle and I go back and forth and my mind and my heart are at odds. And I'm right, breaks the tie is obedience with my body. Do you know how hard it is to stand before him? It's really difficult. And God has designed you that way. Do you know how hard it is to be ungrateful to God when you're stood before him, raising your hands that he is good, and then what you're singing is true? Turn and run from him when you're stood before him with your arms out, not just a mind in a body or just a set of emotions in a body. And worship is not primarily an emotional act. Worship is a moment where God comes and engages with the whole person, with mind, body, and spirit. We sing the words that are true. We engage with our bodies and it moves our feely moment. This is not all about emotion. Worship is a, my worship soapbox. <laughs> if you're here though and you are wrestling with that, and you're saying, I, I, I do believe that God is good, but I don't feel it, and I'm struggling with it, and there's a tension. That's okay. The Psalms give us permission to wrestle and to struggle, almost uncomfortably so. At times, I think that David is the biggest drama queen in the Bible. When you read Psalm 6, and he says, my bed is soaked wet from my tears, I'm like, okay, Thank you for the permission to mourn and to grieve, but that's a bit much, right? The Psalms give you permission to feel what it is that you're feeling, to mourn, to grieve, to experience suffering. They don't give you a pep talk and say, get on up, it's time to raise your hands. They give you permission to experience those things, but they also give you perspective. The Psalms as a book of the Bible is actually uh, assembled over a thousand year period. 
And it was written not just by David, not just by the sons of Korah, but by many other people that we don't even know who they are. And they were assembled, and there's theologians who refer to it as the Torah within the Torah. It was a book of poetry and songs that was assembled to retell the story of what God was doing with his people Israel. And so they grant this perspective while they give us the permission to feel those things and to engage in suffering, they give us the perspective of a bigger story of what God is doing, what he has done, and what he will do. So much so that in Psalms 136, we even run into a moment where the psalmist is able to talk about their captivity and slavery in Egypt in the same breath and say, for his steadfast love endures forever. And if you are wrestling and struggling to believe that God has a plan for your life, that he has a story for your life, if you feel as though uh, you are stuck in suffering and mourning forever, can I just take a second and just preach God's will over your life? God's will is that he wants to lead you out of bondage. He wants to redeem you. He wants to guide you through desert places. He wants to bring you into places of abundance and places of inheritance where he will dwell with you in intimacy, where he will be your God and you will be his. How do I know that that's God's will for your life? Because that's God's will for every life. The first pages of the Bible are filled with a story about a generous God creating this beautiful earth and then carving out this garden and then placing humanity in this garden and then coming and walking with them in the cool of the day in intimacy and love. And even after humanity sins and all of that is lost and we live in this broken and fallen world, the promise remains because the last pages of the Bible are filled with the story about God coming back and bringing a new Jerusalem and filling that place with his glory and with his spirit. And it says, Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. If you are here and you are wrestling and struggling to believe that God is good, this is his will for your life. Wherever you are, whatever suffering or bondage or slavery you find yourself in, God's will is that he wants to lead you out into spacious places where he will come and dwell with you in intimacy. How can I be so sure of that? Because, because God remembers and God rescues us. Towards the end of the psalm, the psalmist has what almost appears to be a prophetic glimpse of the coming Messiah. And so in verse 23, it says, it is he who remembered us in our low estate for his steadfast love endures forever and rescued us from our foes for his steadfast love endures forever. At the end of the day, when all is said and done, when we count everything, the one reason that we can be sure above all else that God is steadfast in his love and worthy of our worship is because of Jesus Christ. Because that God chose to come to earth, to take on flesh, to die a death that he was undeserving of, to pay the price for our sins so that we could have freedom and life and we can enjoy that intimacy and that steadfast love. 
That's what he's done for us. And like I said earlier, if there are other things in your life that are fighting for your allegiance, that are fighting to declare themselves as God and King, they are not good and they do not forgive, but he does. Hallelujah, he does. There is no other king like him. And when you look at a God who's like this, who is steadfast in his love, who demonstrates this type of committed, generous, actionable love that's driven out of deep affection and compassion, who is quick to forgive, who commands all the power in the universe, who is patient with us though we forget and faithful to us though we leave him, who remembers us and rescues us. That God in this Psalm requires one thing of us. Did you catch it? Give thanks. The Psalm begins and ends with the admonishment to give thanks to God. That is the only thing that it requires of us is to give thanks to him. And so when we talk about why do we worship, I'm always hesitant because I feel like sometimes preachers like this can come across like uh, that old cliche of you should eat your vegetables because kids in Africa don't have any, right? I'm not trying to guilt you into worship or gratitude. You can ask parents at the dinner table, it doesn't work. But actually I'm hoping and I'm praying that as we look closely at who this God is, as we examine him again, as we allow the spirit to press into our hearts the truth of his character and what he has done for us, as we remind ourselves again of who he is and his goodness, as we engage with our bodies, with our minds and our spirits, that actually God will come and he will inspire gratitude in a new way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. Truly, Lord, there is no one like you. In the heavens and on the earth, who is your equal, God? We thank you for this love, Lord, this steadfast, enduring, loving kindness that goes beyond and above what we can think or imagine, Lord. And we invite your presence, God. We know that worship ultimately isn't for us, it's for you, God, but because you are so good, Lord, you meet us in worship, God. That you come and you meet us. And so, Father, I pray that as we close out today, Lord, that you would inspire new gratitude in our hearts, Lord that you would draw out praises, that you would draw us to yourself, and that you would reveal yourself as this good and gracious God.